Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. Live from the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for June 7, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Are your physicians providing detailed documentation to adhere to the 2021 evaluation and management guidelines? It might not be. Frank Cohen explains his concerns about possible quality audits and potential malpractice suits. The Medicare administrative contractors, the MACs, can now begin conducting post-payment reviews. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel has details in her RAC report. We'll also hear from Ellen Tanks-Hamnick, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday following a long Memorial Day weekend. CMS is reporting that the MAX may now begin conducting post-payment medical reviews for later dates of service. The target of Probe and Educate, the TPE program, is expected to restart later this year. Also, CMS says that U.S. workers, including those working with gig companies who have been laid off following COVID-19, may now be eligible for reduced premiums and increased savings for healthcare insurance coverage on healthcare.gov. Among those gig workers, think of DoorDash, Lyft, and Uber. And finally, Modern Healthcare is reporting this morning that United Healthcare is unveiling a policy to retroactively deny emergency department claims. We'll continue to monitor this developing story. We have much news to report and begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Once again, I have several topics to discuss. You know, as society gets back to normal, we're starting to see more data on the effects of the pandemic. And as I've discussed in the past, one of the scary things that hospitals saw was that the number of patients with non-COVID-related illnesses plummeted last spring. Strokes and heart attacks seemingly disappeared. Well, a study released last week from Kaiser in Northern California confirmed these observations. For the spring surge, they saw a 41% decline in hospitalizations for heart attacks. But those numbers returned to normal during the summer and winter surges. Now, of course, there's no way to know why this happened. Were there fewer heart attacks and strokes because many people stayed at home and weren't active? Or did people simply continue to have heart attacks and strokes but avoided the hospital? And then once hospitals started reassuring patients it was safe to come, they returned. We don't know. It'll be interesting if they can analyze these data further. It'll also be interesting to see the incidence of cancer in the next few years as so many people avoided their screening examinations. Now, moving on, CMS announced last week, as Chuck said, that they have given the MACs permission to start auditing claims submitted for care during the public health emergency. We have no idea what they're actually going to audit, but I suspect it will be a mess as they try and sort out what was allowed with the waivers and what was not allowed. Of course, I hope they go after the cheaters with everything they've got, but also show some leniency for the many who tried to do their best under the worst of circumstances. And it wouldn't be a Monitor Monday round if I didn't criticize something. So I'm going to gently criticize CMS and United Healthcare. UHC has a policy on inpatient admissions. And in that policy, they reference the CMS manual provision that states, for inpatient admission, the patient must receive services of such intensity that they can only be safely and effectively provided on an inpatient basis. 
The problem is that provision is in the QIO manual, and that QIO manual was last updated in 2003. It's totally obsolete with the two midnight rule. Now, CMS changed all the other manuals when they adopted this two midnight rule, but they seemingly forgot this one. And even though UHC is not a QIO, they have no problem using this provision to deny admissions. I've contacted CMS, but no response yet. Now, finally, I made a big mistake. In my segments and webinars about the CMS prior authorization program, I noted that if a hospital did not get the prior authorization, they could still get paid after the denial since they had a full right of appeal. And this is right from CMS. Well, CMS has clarified to me that although they do have full appeal rights, the only way a denial would be overturned on appeal is if the provider can prove they actually had the prior authorization and the MAC missed it. Now, proving medical necessity, that means, will not get you an overturn. And I spoke incorrectly about that. Now, to me, being able to only win an appeal if you can prove you had prior authorization is not the definition of full appeal rights, but that's not my call to make. So if it needs prior authorization, get it or don't get paid. I apologize for my error. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. Apology accepted. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ron Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now with the Monitor Monday RAC report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. The Medicare, as Dr. Hurst said, the Medicare administrative contractors have full authority now to renew postpayment reviews. The COVID pause is entirely off. It's going to be a mess. Rack audits of COVID dates of service will be at best placing a finger on mercury. In the upcoming weeks, I will keep you posted, but I do want to tell you about something else. I am especially excited today. Last week, I won a permanent injunction for a healthcare facility that but for this injunction, the facility would be closed. It's 300 staff unemployed and it's 600 Medicare and Medicaid consumers without access to their mental health and substance abuse providers, their primary care physicians, and a Suboxone clinic. The judge's clerk emailed us on Friday. The email was although the clerk signified that the email was important by clicking that little red exclamation point. The email simply stated, after speaking with Judge X, she is dismissing the government's motion to dismiss and granting petitioner's permanent injunction. Petitioner's counsel can send a proposed decision within 10 days. Such a simple email that affected so many lives. We hear Ellen speak about social determinants of health here on Rack Monitor, well, this company is minority-owned, and the mass percentage of staffing consumers are minorities. Why was this company on the brink of closing down? The managed care organization terminated the company's Medicaid contract, and Medicaid comprised the majority of its revenue. The MCO's reason was that the company violated 42 CFR 455.106, which states that information must be disclosed to the Medicaid agency before it enters into or renews a provider agreement or at any time upon a written request by the Medicaid agency. The provider must disclose to the Medicaid agency the identity of any person who has ownership or a control interest in the provider 
and I'm paraphrasing here, and two, has been convicted of a criminal offense related to the person's involvement in the program under Medicare, Medicaid, or the Social Security Act. Well, the former CEO for years, he relied on professional tax accountants for the company's taxes and for his own personal family's taxes. His wife, who's also a physician, relied on her husband to do their personal taxes as one of his honey-do tasks. CEO relied on a subpar accountant for a couple years and pled guilty to failing to pay personal taxes for two years. The plea ended up in the newspaper and the MCO terminated the facility's contract. We argued that the company, as an entity, was bigger than just the CEO. Quickly, we filed for a TRO to keep the company open. Concurrently, we transitioned the company from the CEO to Dr. Weiss. Dr. Weiss became CEO in a seamless transition, and a long-term executive stepped up as HR management. Yet according to testimony, the MCO terminated the company's contract when the newspaper published the article about CE former CEO's guilty plea. The article was published in the local paper on April 9th, and the termination notice was sent out April 19th. It was a quick decision. We argued that 42 CFR 455-106 didn't apply because CEO's guilty plea was A, personal and not related to Medicare or Medicaid, and B, not a conviction but a voluntary plea agreement. Well, the judge agreed. We won the TRO for immediate relief. After a four-day hearing and 22 witnesses for petitioner, we won the preliminary injunction. At this point, the MCO hired outside counsel with our tax dollars, which I did bring up in the final hearing on the merits, and new outside counsel was super excited to be involved. He immediately propounded a ton of discovery, asking for things he already had and for criminal documentation that we had no access to by law. Uh, the new lawyer was really excited, so he filed motions to compel us to produce these unattainable documents and sanctions were filed. It was really, really interesting, and it ended up that we won. The company is open for business. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole. Great story. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of practice. And coming up, you're going to hear from Ellen Fixandrick, David Glazer, and senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's June 7th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Doctors go to medical school, nurses go to nursing school, but there's no school for utilization review. That's a problem, because the world of utilization review in Medicare is very difficult. Fortunately, an upcoming webcast with Dr. Ronald Hirsch addresses those core issues. Things I Wish I'd Learned When I Started in Utilization Review is a remarkable webcast led by Dr. Hirsch. It's a back-to-basics tutorial for utilization review of what Medicare provides and does not provide, and how Medicare pays hospitals for both inpatient and outpatient services. The special live webcast is this Thursday, June 10th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Plan to attend Things I Wish I'd Learned When I Started in Utilization Review. Register now at the Rack University Bookstore. Here now with a Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. What could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's the parable of the poorly privileged physician. 
In addition to being appealingly alliterative, it has now become one of the most common questions I get asked. But first, indulge me in a quick bit of astronomy. If you live north and east of a line from, say, Fargo, North Dakota to Charleston, South Carolina, Thursday morning, if you get up at dawn, you can check out a partial solar eclipse. It won't be nearly as cool as the total solar eclipse from 2017. That was one of the coolest things ever. But like if you take a colander out and cast a shadow, it'll cast little round shadows. Normally, they'll have little shadows with moon bites taken out of them. Now, back to our uh, actual substance. So if a hospital discovers that a physician performed services for which the physician lacked hospital privileges, must the hospital refund both the physician's professional component and the facility fee, or either one of them? Well, for Medicare, with one very limited exception, the answer is that no refund is required. Now, I want to emphasize I'm talking about hospital privileges and not credentialing with a third-party payer. Credentialing is a different kettle of fish. It's certainly true that Medicare's conditions of participation require a hospital to make sure that it properly credentials physicians. But as we've talked about many times on this broadcast, conditions of participation and conditions of payment are different. Violating a condition of participation is serious. It can get you tossed out of the Medicare program, but it doesn't automatically result in an overpayment. CMS has specifically instructed contractors not to recover an overpayment simply because of a violation of the conditions of participation. To the best of my knowledge, the only time that privileges are a condition of payment relates to hospital admissions. The two midnight regulation, which you can find at 42 CFR 412.3, defines an inpatient as a patient who's received an admission order from a professional with privileges to admit the patient. When a patient is admitted from an order from someone lacking admitting privileges, that means there's a stronger argument that a refund is appropriate because the conditions of payment outlined in 42, or what's arguably conditions of payment outlined in that regulation aren't met. But if a surgeon performs a procedure for which they are not privileged, I see nothing that would require either the physician or the hospital to refund the reimbursement received. Now, this conclusion only applies to Medicare. It's possible that Medicaid in your state explicitly requires privileging as a condition of payment. In addition, while unlikely, some private insurer may contractually impose the privileging requirement. Finally, while working on, I was a client on this problem recently, I learned that some states might have statutes that at least create an argument that privileges are a condition for payment. So as always, it's worth looking at your state law. But generally speaking, you won't have to refund because of privilege issues. Now this emphasizes the importance of using counsel that has an open mind and will work hard to permit you to retain the money for the services that you've provided. If you're working with someone who doesn't point out the distinction between conditions of payment and conditions of participation, you need to work with either better counsel or at least educate your counsel about this point. The position that you're permitted to keep reimbursement received for services actually provided, if the only violation is a condition of participation, isn't radical and it's not aggressive. It's just not widely enough understood. It's easy to think that all lawyers are the same, but we're not. Some are good, some are great, but just like every other profession, it turns out half of us are below average. You may want some advice from the other half, or better yet, the top 10%. So Chuck, 
June 1st marked the start of meteorological summer. I suggest that you find counsel who heed the advice of Donna Summer. When considering a refund, your counsel needs to understand that she works hard for the money, so you better treat her right. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now, with the very latest news on the social determinants of health, is Alan Fink Samnick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. And good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. How wonderful the last few weeks have been in the social determinant space. Several impactful events have occurred that I'm excited to share with you. It's as if the industry was listening to my rant on our last broadcast about being on data overload without strategic action. Well, the action is happening and in big ways. First is important news for Aunt Bertha, the closed-loop social network that leverages every case manager, care coordinator, and social worker, their favorite site, findhelp.org. $27 million in new funding will enable Aunt Bertha to enhance its assorted free and paid offerings, further expand its new marketplace, and provide growing support for professionals and volunteers connecting people to social services. FindHelp.org is already the largest care network in the country, with over 470,000 program locations and 1,295 bedded listings and growing, accessible to people in need in every zip code in America. Now, the new marketplace will allow customers to order social goods and services to immediately meet the need for people seeking help, eligibility screening, outcome tracking, Payments and invoicing for social good and social ordering will also be available. Some examples of marketplace implementations include power car seat orders for Medicaid members in Texas, food box delivery orders in Pennsylvania, and Uber rides to vaccination sites in one of Michigan's largest health systems, Beaumont Health. Next up, the CDC is amplifying action to address health disparities through 20 new grants. The Closing the Gap with Social Determinants of Health Accelerator Plan grants are geared to support plans that involve governments, private businesses, nonprofit, and community organizations and healthcare organizations. Community health assessments and long-range planning to address the determinants are major program incentives. 20 grants will be offered by the CDC, each totaling $125,000. Each of the 10 health and human service regions in the U.S. will be limited to three awards to promote geographic diversity, and at least one U.S. territory and one tribe will be funded. Only government entities and tribal organizations can apply. Health system and hospitals working on an accelerator plan must partner with local or state governmental agencies to obtain and utilize this funding. Eligible applicants include city or township governments, state governments, Native American tribal organizations, other than federally funded and recognized tribal governments, county governments, special district governments, and federally, federally recognized Native American tribal governments. Applicants must also be physically located and operated in the state, tribe, locality, or territory for which work is proposed. 
More information can be found on the CDC website and the assorted links in my upcoming story for Rack Monitor this week. Our Monitor Monday survey wants to know, how much does your organization rely on grant funding to expand SDOH solutions? Very little, somewhat, a great deal, do not know, or does not apply. Well, we'll review the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was consultant and author Ellen Frick Sandwich. Coming up next, the revealing results from that survey. You're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Over the past year, maintaining strict regulatory compliance has been a big challenge. A variety of factors, from a deluge of regulatory news to the deadly pandemic, make it feel like you're navigating turbulent waters. Now more than ever, you need to be sure everyone on your team, including those working remotely, is following the same guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance webcast is your port in the storm. For a single money-saving fee, your whole team can access the full library of exclusive Rack Monitor educational webcasts featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Here's good news. You can get a complimentary three-day trial by visiting the portal page at Rack University. Now is the time for the results of today's Modern Monday Listener Survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Well, Chuck, we are again asking our audience how much their organizations implement sustainable SDOH solutions. And 8% of our audience said very little. Over 14% said somewhat, 6% said a great deal, about half of our audience did not know, and well, 17% said do not apply. So we will touch back on the grant funding question and look forward to hearing more from our organizations and listeners about what they're doing in the SDOH space. At the top of the broadcast, you heard us ask the question, are physicians providing detailed documentation as they adhere to the 2021 evaluation and management guidelines? Well, senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen joins us now to explain why he's concerned that they might not be. And Frank has a number to back up his concern. It's a concern of possible quality audits and potential malpractice suits. So what's going on in the world according to Frank? Well, you know, up until 2021, at least for the prior few decades, coders and clinicians relied upon these sort of established E&M guidelines to determine which code would be appropriate for an encounter. So these are usually referred to as the 95 and the 97 guidelines. And while they differed quite significantly in some areas, there was sort of a common aspect to how these codes were selected. So, you know, in addition to chief complaint, you had history, physical exam, and medical decision-making. These are called key components. And each of these were determined based on some specific grid pattern, right? And the grid pattern had some quantitative and qualitative assessments and the findings. Like history was three subsections, history of present illness, review of systems, past family or social history. So each of those could be assigned a specific descriptor. And again, um, as an example, HPI might be assigned uh, a descriptor of either brief or extended, review of systems could be problem pertinent, extended or complete and on and on, you know? And then those ended up coming up with another grid. So you have four possible types, problem focus, expanded problem focus, detailed, comprehensive. Here's the kicker. When you've completed this complex array, you've only completed one third of those three key components. You still got a thousand more decisions 
to go. Now, the new guidelines depend on either one of two criteria, medical decision-making or total time for the encounter. And I'm not a coder. I'm not going to try to explain how medical decision-making works. Actually, I don't really understand it, so I'm not going to try and explain it. But I am concerned about the change in coding patterns, which I reported on my prior article, and the sort of potential fall-off in what I have always believed was important documentation in the medical record. So my concern is about how extensively will physicians document the history and physical exam in the chart, since some of that's not required, you know, parts of it. So um, uh, will they continue to over-document? And what I mean by that is beyond that which is required to treat the chief complaint. So I did a study. I looked at 10,072 uh, audits for office visits that were performed by our clients, entered into our audit system. Here's what I found only about 3.4% of those encounters that were decided based on medical decision-making also reported that they documented the physical exam and only 6.8% reported that they documented the history. And if that holds true, I expect there may be more serious long-term consequences as a result. Now, from my limited experience in the courtroom, I do know that without detailed documentation, providers may face an uphill battle in defending themselves against quality audits and malpractice, uh, you know, um, issues. And, and the reason I'm told that we're facing this problem is because over-documentation of history and exam pretty much defeat the burden reduction goal of the new guidelines. So in essence, it would be the same amount of work as before rendering that goal as moot. But I'm going to leave the answer to these questions to the experts. Uh, Dr. Ronald Hirsch and attorney David Glazer after my segment. Now, I will say that I'm the first to admit that my results may be biased, <clears throat> excuse me, due to a failure to properly collect the data. While the new guidelines require medically appropriate history or exam, it is possible that while this is happening, it is not being recorded properly in our system. So we're adding a couple of checkboxes to our audit documentation application, and I expect to have some meaningful results in the next few months. So Chuck, with your permission, I'm going to leave it here with a promise that by the end of next quarter, I'll come back to you with a new study that may clear up some of the confusion on this issue. And that's the world according to Frank. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Frank. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Business Intelligence for Doctors Management. And David, Frank gave us a really good lead-in to ask a couple of questions about his segment. He sure did. So, uh, Dr. Hirsch, if you want to start off by offering your thoughts. Sure. Well, I, I was a little shocked at the 6.8% um, number. I, I think that has to be a data collection error. Um, I think physicians... Um, I would hope are going to document the information that's necessary and just skip all of the superfluous stuff that we had to ask for. You know, so if someone came in with a, um abdominal pain, you know, checking them for moles or asking about rashes ne wasn't necessarily, you know, pertinent. So um, I do wonder about that. I, again, I think the fear of malpractice is always hanging over every physician and to not document the, the pertinent history items and the exam parts that you did just doesn't make sense in today's environment. So, and my thoughts on this, is this is a great, you know, Frank has raised a great example of the importance of thinking about each of the regulatory frameworks you're in. It sort of ties in a little bit actually with my segment too, because documentation for Medicare billing is one set of requirements which is just can be different from documentation. Rose has asked a question, well, what about other payers, right? Other payers can have different requirements, which can be different from your medical malpractice requirements, which might be different from uh, any requirements imposed by a 
a certifying body you work with, like JCO, the Joint Commission, or someone like that. So there are all of these different obligations, and you need to satisfy each of them. And the fact that one of them might give you more leniency, you know, the fact that Medicare says we don't need a history doesn't mean that if you're in a medical malpractice case, you might not need to have a clear history documented. Dr. Hirsch actually sent me a question sort of about the privileging thing and said, hey, well, wait a minute. What about medical necessity? And of, as usual, Dr. Hirsch is right. If, you're, if the procedure involved wasn't medically necessary, then that's its own independent problem, right? It, it's, it's really a different question than whether or not the person had privileges. But let's say you've got a doctor who's a crummy, is crummy at completing his or her documentation. And so they've been suspended as a disciplinary maneuver because they're, as a kind of a message to say, hey, get your records in on time. Does the fact that they're suspended mean that you can't bill for the work that they did because no one noticed that they continued to see patients? And my answer to that would be, I made that confusing, but no, you don't need to refund that money. And so it, it's much like Frank's segment. They're kind of these different pieces to the puzzle. You have a credentialing requirement that applies, but that is different from the reimbursement requirements. So hopefully that made sense and we've answered the questions. And Chuck, I will turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much, and thank you for answering the question that Rose gave us earlier. We thank you also for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink, Sandrick, David Glazer, who we just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Frank Cohen, who reported our lead story. And remember, when we're not on the air, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review, please. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thanks. We're starting your Monday with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.